Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount and how we can apply it to our lives. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about a really cool resource that we're giving away with this series. We understand that spiritual growth can be really hard, and I personally get that even when you leave having heard one of my sermons with the best intentions to apply it to your life, turning those best intentions into real life actions can be pretty difficult. And so with this series, we're giving away devotional sheets. These devotional sheets contain daily activities that will take about 10 minutes for you to complete. The activities are varied from day to day. One day has a devotional writing written by me, another has questions, another has guided prayer, and there's a few other things too. I really do think that these devotional sheets will help you to immerse yourself more fully in the passages of scripture that I'm preaching on in this series, and I hope that you will get a copy. You can get a copy by visiting one of our services, or for you online listeners, you can get one by going to wilsonville.church slash SOTM. That's wilsonville.church slash SOTM. The SOTM stands for Sermon on the Mount. Hey, again, thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I may say that I have never been interested in a historical Jesus. I should not care if it was proven by someone that the man called Jesus never lived and that what was narrated in the Gospels was a figment of the writer's imagination for the Sermon on the Mount would still be true for me. This sermon uh, takes up three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew and it's filled with phrases and verses and passages that are extremely well known um, but perhaps not very well lived out. And in this series the goal is to take a look at the book of Matthew chapter 5. We'll do 6 and 7 at a later time. I haven't decided that yet. But we're going to look at chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the goal is not to go, wow, Jesus is incredible. We do that a lot and we should do that in every one of these series. The goal is to say Jesus is incredible and what do his words in this sermon mean for my life today? I've been calling this the Gandhi sermon in my head because he was so quotable about the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not a Gandhi fan or a Gandhi subscriber, but uh, he said this. This was not a, a positive thing. He said, much of what passes as Christianity is a negation of the Sermon on the Mount. That's sad, right? We just finished a series where we talked about what it meant to live as a sojourner, somebody who is a citizen of heaven but lives on earth and, and how we ought to live and what that ought to look like. And in it, we talked about how, how when we live a beautiful life, when we live rightly as Christians of heaven, that it, that it makes people want to become Christians. And here is Gandhi saying... Yeah, if they just lived according to the Sermon on the Mount, then maybe I could get behind that. I think that, that God ordained this series of sermons to be here following our last because the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus' own words on how we ought to live while we sojourn on earth. But too often we just, we just look at it and go, wow, that's brilliant. And never try to actually put into practice the things that Jesus has called us to put into practice. I have this distinct and weird memory uh, of 
my childhood where I'm playing basketball. I don't, this is so weird. I know this is a weird memory, but it's real. I'm playing basketball in my driveway and I'm having a conversation with I don't know who about whether or not the Sermon on the Mount was something we actually tried to need to apply to our lives. It may be the most indicative uh, moment in my history for who I would become as an adult, a person that loves sports and loves Jesus, but there's this prevailing theory amongst many Christians, and I think I was on this side as a seven-year-old, I don't know why, uh, but that the Sermon on the Mount is this ideal that can never be lived out. We look at it and we say, this is real, this is a real theory about the Sermon on the Mount. This was Jesus' way of showing us how immoral we are and how much we need his gift of forgiveness and salvation. I think that it's a terrible idea to look at any portion in scripture and say I could never live that out and even if it is an ideal that we cannot live out it's an ideal that we should be striving to live out right we have this this idea Christians are terrible about this like like uh, the Bible says that we should be perfect because our heavenly father is perfect and then we look at that and we decide where we fall theologically, like, do I think we can actually live a, a life of moral perfection or do I not? And John Wesley is a guy who thought we could. Most Christians today would tell you that we can't. And, and so then we kind of talk about what we think it means and then, and then we never at all make an effort to move towards that standard that God has set because we just get muddled in whether or not it's even possible. The Sermon on the Mount is somewhat that way. Can we live these things out? Can we actually live up to the standard that Jesus has set? Who knows? But when somebody sets a standard, we should be aiming to live it out, even if we will never accomplish that. I mean, I want my kids to, to do everything perfectly, right? I mean, that's what I want from my own children. And in this passage we'll look at today, God tells us that he is our father. I mean, it's the first reference in the book of Matthew to God being our father, in fact, and Man, I want, I have this, I have these goals and these standards and these expectations for my children that in no way will they ever be able to live out. But they should be shooting for, for greatness, right? Because if they're not, then they're, they're going to be second rate, frankly, in their lives. My family has this saying, shoot for the stars and if you only make it to the highest mountain, then you did pretty good. And when it comes to living out the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think we're shooting for anything. We just say, wow, Jesus did an incredible job. What a sermon. That's cool. Very quotable. And then we don't do anything with those words. Gandhi's advice, I know it's the Gandhi sermon, but Gandhi's advice to Christians, become worthy of the message that is embedded in the Sermon on the Mount. A Christian New Testament scholar R.T. France said the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not to be admired, but to be obeyed. And so as we approach this book, and, and it's kind of a humbling thing to approach, right? As, as a preacher, I can tell you to, to look at the words of Jesus here as humbling because I'll never be able to, to, to preach in the way that he preached or with the power that he preached with. But it's just picture it. I mean, if you had Jesus sitting and in, in, standing in front of you instead of me today, you would be, wouldn't you, just hanging on every word going, 
oh, finally I get to talk to Jesus. I get to hear from Jesus. And I get to know, you know, how to live my life. I think even somebody that's staunchly against Christianity would show up on that Sunday and say, wow, what is it that he's going to communicate? What is it that Jesus would say if he was preaching a sermon? And that is what is recorded for us in Matthew 5 through 7. And and Matthew 5 begins, and we're not going to cover this um, in, in this series at all, but with what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And so Jesus lays forth this new ideal when it comes to life. The poor in spirit are the blessed ones. Those who mourn are the blessed ones. Those who are meek are the blessed ones. And it's almost as if he hears this little band of followers that he has, these early disciples, thinking, saying, well, if we're just meek and humble and broken, how are we ever going to start a movement that changes the world? I mean, if that's your description of Christianity, Jesus, if that's the description of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Christ follower, then this little band of believers is just going to die and never have made any difference at all. And Jesus begins really the meat of the Sermon on the Mount with answering some of those criticisms Some of the questions that perhaps we had when we looked at what it meant to be a sojourner here on earth. And here's what he says in Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt was so important in the ancient world that it was used as a medium of exchange between, um, between merchants that would travel from the Mediterranean, Aegean, and Adriatic seas. And, and so they would use it like as, you know, as the kind of middleman in their currency because everybody needed salt. And, and frankly, um, I, just because I'm preaching on this, I've, I've just been noticing all week how often the topic of salt comes up, uh, and it comes up quite frequently. It's like a normal part of our life. Salt's very important. Some fries showed up when we were at Wow Burger the other day, and Brenda didn't even think about the, my sermon like I was. She's like, not enough salt. You know, I mean, this is just, we really value salt. Here in Oregon, we have, we have, uh, debated not me personally but lots of people have debated whether to put salt on the grounds when it snows and you're on the side of salting the ground if you were stuck on i5 a couple of years ago for seven hours you're like we should salt everything we should just salt when it's 80 degrees outside because i never want to have to pee in a cup again while i'm driving down i5 you know salt is a very valuable commodity we need salt we take it for granted because it's so plentiful now but it's something that we need and it's something that was a really big deal in the first century and it was used for all kinds of things things that we would not even think about today and and frankly all of the uses of salt in the first century make it a little bit difficult to know what Jesus is talking about when he uses this metaphor Um, it's a preservative we know that we have beef jerky We have frozen dinners, 
hate to tell you if you're a frozen dinner eater uh, that if you look at the nutrition facts it's like all the salt you should have in the month in one of those little boxes because it keeps it keeps it fresh that's not the right word uh, it keeps it preserved that's a better word it's, it was used as an antiseptic and it still is today uh, I, I have uh, been um, I don't like telling you this, but you probably already know it if you know me at all. But I've been a nail biter my entire life, and that has produced some ingrown fingernails that were extremely painful. And every time you go to the doctor for an ingrown fingernail, they will tell you to get the Epsom salt and, and pour it in water and then stick your finger in because it, it, it helps um, without any detail. Um, uh, it, was it is, it still is an essential element of the human diet, right? There's this, if you are... Uh, hyponitremia, nitremia? somebody might be in that in our church. It means that you don't have enough sodium. That's pretty rare. I wouldn't go out and buy a frozen dinner if I were you, but uh, there are some people who, who don't have enough salt in their blood system and all that. And, and so it, it is, we don't think of it this way because we eat plenty of salt. We have French fries, but it's an essential part of the human diet. We need some salt. Uh, it, it is used for seasoning, I'm not a big salt guy, I'm a big sugar guy, but give me a baked potato and it's like I just screw the lid off of the salt and pour it on there. That's what I like about baked potatoes is butter and salt. That's, I don't even like potatoes really. I just like butter and salt. And so I pour it on there and it was used for seasoning in the first century too. It was used for fertilizer. Uh, I read this in a commentary. It can kill weeds and improve soil. And I was really skeptical about that because I've never heard that before. Some of you maybe who are more green-thumbed than I am I have seen that, but I didn't know that. And so I Googled it and uh, sfgate.com says sea salt contains sodium, iron, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and trace amounts of many other materials. Used correctly, sea salt is beneficial to plants, providing them with these nutritional elements had no idea but salt is used to fertilize things in fact in the first century they would pour it on top of fertilizer manure basically which i think is very intriguing uh, and then uh, it was used uh, as a fire catalyst arab bakers would use salt on their oven floors others would put a flat plate of salt on the bottom of their kilns and um I, again, I, I was like, is, did that work at all? Or was that just legend or whatever? So I Googled and the first thing I ended up with was not Reddit, but a Reddit-like site, just like a forum where, where some guy said I was at a restaurant, a barbecue joint, and they started pouring salt on the fire. Can anybody tell me what was going on? And the number one voted answer was this. Salt is a good means to control suppressed flames and flare-ups without having a cooling effect on the coals. And so I guess if you're barbecuing, it helps to pour a little salt on your charcoal or whatever and, and so all of these things are, I guess are still in use I don't I only think of salt and baked potatoes but uh, all of these things are are still present today but they would have been an integral part of the first century Jewish person's life and salt was not cheap and so it was a big deal to be able to get your hands on salt and and so it leaves us with with the question like what is Jesus calling us to be as Christians? What does this metaphor actually mean? 
Uh, is Jesus calling us to pervert, preserve the good in our society? Is he calling us to sterilize the moral decay of our world? Is he calling us to be an essential, essential element of people's spiritual diets? Is he calling us to be the seasoning that makes the world better? Is he calling us to be elements of growth? Is he calling us to be elements that fan the flame of Christianity or control the immorality that seeks to burn our culture's moral fabric? I mean... Uh, I thought of We Didn't Start the Fire, the song. I don't know why I wrote it down. But, um, you know, it's like there's this fire and is, is Jesus saying we need to control this flame? Is that our job? What is, what is everybody's singing that song in their heads right now. Um, I can see it in your eyes. But what, what is the, the, the purpose of Jesus' words? And, and for me, I think, I think that the answer is yes. I, I know Jesus well enough to... Uh, to see the genius of Jesus. And I think when Jesus uses this term salt, he knows the variety of usages in his society. He knows how valuable and important it is to the world. And I think he says, you are the salt of the earth in order to say, you are to be agents of good in your society and that takes so many forms, right? I mean, you should live morally exemplary lives in order to help the society preserve the, the moral fabric or foundation. And man, how, how greatly have we failed at that as Christians uh, today, right? I mean, we look at culture and say, I can't believe how immoral it's become. But perhaps we should be looking in the churches and, and, and saying, I can't believe how immoral we allowed ourselves to become so that culture no longer had preservation. And we should be fanning the flames of spirituality in our world. And, and we should be seasoning, right? I mean, we should make the world a better place. People should like it when we walk into a room because we're nice and we're kind and we're joyful and we have peace no matter what's going on. Everybody else is freaking out about the newest political thing and here comes the Christian full of joy no matter what is happening all around us. What I think Jesus is saying when he calls us to be salt is that we are to be incredible agents of good in the world. We should permeate every society with positivity. And man, I think we've, we've just lost that, right? Like we, we don't live that out. We are people that others kind of dread walking into the room. Not you personally, but Christians in general. Because we're doomsdayers, right? Like, oh, here we go again. It's the end. I can't believe that guy got elected. You know, it's all going bad. This society, you turn on the TV, they're all horrible. Everything's terrible. I don't know what that is, but it's not salty. It's not making the baked potato any better. I can tell you that. And so when Jesus says this thing, it, it's, it's a big thing. It's a really big thing. Christians should be vessels, elements, to get closer to the analogy. We should be elements of good. So much so that it has a positive effect on the people and the culture around us. John Stotts, another author, 
Uh, in the message on the Sermon on the Mount, the book, he says, we serve neither God nor ourselves nor the world by attempting to obliterate or even minimize this difference. And what he means by that is, is Christians, in order to be salt, must be different than the world that is around us. And what Stott is talking about is, is how much we've tried to look just like the culture around us. And what we've done is we've tried to look like the culture around us is that we have, we've lost our saltiness. We don't make the world any better by being just like the world. He says, again, probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. That's a big statement. Now, when I hear counterculture, it, it rubs me a little bit wrong because I, I have certain images that pop into my head that I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, I have a couple of those images for you. I printed them right from my brain. Uh, when I hear the word counterculture, I think of like this. WWJD bracelets, right? Like, cool, like we can have our own bracelets and it'll be countercultural, it'll be different than everybody else. I'm not against WWJD bracelets, but, uh, but this is what I think of when I think of counterculture. Um, I also think of, of, of these guys from my childhood, uh, DC Talk, uh, Christian music, right? Uh, have you listened to Christian music lately? Oh, Oh, I, I sound, I know it'll make me sound like an old guy if I start talking, but I can't tell if they're singing to Jesus or they're singing to some lady that they just met at a bar. Um, sorry, side note, nobody needed that, but, um, <laughs> and it's a techno beat now. What happened to the world? At least we used to copy rock and roll, and now we're copying some Z100 techno stuff. Again, side note, uh, but this is what we think of when, when we think of uh, Christian culture is like, oh, we'll, we'll just steal all their music and change the lyrics. Or like this, like uh, we won't have their cartoons, we'll have our own cartoons, you know? It's like, like and, and again, VeggieTales is great. I like VeggieTales. And, and I like DC Talk. Song Red Letters is one of the greatest. And I've never had a WWJD bracelet, but that's kind of shocking. Uh, and, and I'm surprised I never did. But but for me, I think that, that Christians have taken what, what John Stott says here. I know he's not Jesus. They've taken what Jesus says, and, and they've missed really the point. They've said, we're going to be countercultural by stealing culture stuff and making our own brand. But when Stott and Jesus refer to a counterculture, they, they aren't referring to our bracelets or our TV shows or our music, they're talking about the quality of life that we live. They're talking, uh, specifically, Jesus is talking about living morally exemplary lives when he talks about being the salt of the world. And, and I think that in our, if, if we make any effort to live out this part of the Sermon on the Mount, the way we've done it is by saying, we'll make veggie tales. I'll let my kids watch Veggie Tales instead of, I don't know, I don't know, like this, Flintstones. I know they're not in the same era. That's the only cartoon that's coming to my head. But, you know, like, and that is not what Jesus is saying. We can have our Christian music. We can have our Christian shows. We can have our Christian movies. Those are all great. But what Jesus is saying 
is that we need to live such morally exemplary lives, such good and positive lives, that it permeates our culture and just makes it better. Just makes it better. If you could picture culture as a big chunk of meat, the meat will go bad without us, and the meat won't taste nearly as good without us. It just won't be as good. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. I also think of, of this, and I think this is an important distinction too because I don't think it's what Jesus has in mind. I think of like the weird families that I know, all in the name of Jesus, right? You know the people. Um, just like they're strange, and, and they think that being salt is being weird or something like that, and, and they show up and you're like, you're abnormal. I even think that as a Christian, right? Like you... you fake happiness and you you say christian things all the time even though it doesn't really even fit uh you know these people by uh they just use christian lingo it's just christian lingo all the time right like how you doing today i'm blessed man oh well i'm fine <laughs> thank you for your response and, and i'm not saying this is bad but you've known the type right and, and i don't think what jesus is saying again is like always speak Christian, always act like everything's okay and happy despite how sad you are. It's not that. It's just living such good lives that we don't have to fake it. We don't have to act. We don't have to show up and, and pretend to be something that we're not. And so the, the first analogy that Jesus uses is, is really that, that we just need to be so good, just so good, that it makes the world a better place. I should also note that, that it doesn't mean more sugar. I think that that would have been a vastly different metaphor, and that's something that we've tried to be as Christians, right? Pat everybody on the back, don't get in anybody's way, don't make anybody feel like like they're wrong or that there's sin in the world. And, and I think this is frankly one of the reasons that, that Christianity has shrunk in the last 20 years so drastically in our country. It's because we've tried to be sugar and not salt. You ever had salt go into a wound? It stings a little bit, right? And we've just, said, we've just looked at culture and said like, oh, we want to reach you and so oh, that's kind of bad, but oh, we'll just try to make it seem a little better. And, uh, and that's not it. That's not it. We are to be so good that it affects change in those around us. We are to live so godly and, and so in line with the Holy Spirit that it affects, it affects change all around us. It doesn't just make everything seem a little bit nicer. And then Jesus switches metaphors. And he says this in 14 and 15, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Light's more essential than salt, right? I mean, we can barely function without light. We just celebrated Sukkot, uh, little over a week ago and we were out on the church property and 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 we were uh, pretty much let it go dark on us in order to uh, to enact this ancient symbol of of lighting light and 
and uh, we had four fire pits built and we used candles, a great moment. We used candles to light these fire pits and it was incredible, just four fire pits, how it changed the atmosphere, it changed. I mean, we went from not being able to see kids to having to yell at them for doing the wrong things, you know what I mean? Like, it just, it, we could tell who we were talking to when we were sitting next to them. Uh, it, was, it was a staggering visual manifestation, visual uh, effect on, on this spiritual principle that, that exists throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, there's this contrast between dark and light. And, and usually when the Bible uses this, this contrast, this metaphor, it's talking about uh, immorality and evil versus good, moral, godly, uh, and God himself. And in fact, Jesus himself declares in the book of John that he is the light of the world, uh, and he also says that we are lights. And, and really, the best way to see this is that we are torchbearers or lamps. We are not the light ourselves, but we carry the light to the world. And this is a big deal because the world cannot function without light. Without the sunlight, we would be dead. But even without our electronic lights or flames, it would be hard to function in our society. It would be really, really difficult. And, and so Jesus is saying, again, you must be, you must be an essential part of the society in which you live. And he explains this one more than he explains salt. Let your light shine before others, notice this, that they may see your good deeds. We do our job as torchbearers by doing good works. Some authors have made a distinction between salt and light, saying salt is our morally exemplary lives. We remove sin, we add virtues, and that's what it means to be salt, while light is the additional things that we do. We do good work, we serve the world, we serve at Villaboo, we show people that we love them and we care about them. It's, it's a... It's kind of sad how, how we don't treat this like they did in the early church. I'm, I'm listening to this book that's quoted in the devotional sheet that we've given away today, but uh, another part stood out to me. This book is called Church History in Plain Language, and uh, it's, it's a church history book, which are usually not exciting, but he said, he's, he's quoted a couple of people in, in the history of Christianity that have it's been impactful to me in some ways. Um, one of the things that the early, the early Christians were known for was burying the dead, giving the dead a proper burial. Not just Christians, just anybody that would die in their communities. And, and the reason that they did this is because they valued human life so much. There's this quote where this, this guy says, we cannot fathom a creature created in the image of God not being given a proper and respectful burial. That's light, right? The world looks at that and goes, that's different. It doesn't mean they will accept the light. It doesn't mean that they'll give their lives to Jesus, but, but they understand that it's a positive difference that's being made. 
I point to this a lot because it, it drives me nuts that Christianity has such a bad reputation in our culture. But if you look at the names of almost any hospital, not all of them, but almost any hospital, it's in some ways connected to Christianity because hospitals exist, because Christians looked at Jesus and said, that's the great physician who heals people's souls and while he was living, healed people's bodies and we want to be like Jesus, we want to be torchbearers and so we'll do our best to heal people's bodies too. At some point in our nation's history, it seems like we just became okay was showing up to a service on Sunday morning, singing a few songs, listening to a sermon, patting each other on the back and going home. But early Christians took very seriously this call to be the torchbearers of Jesus, to let their light shine before all men. And they did whatever it took to show the greatness of God. Whether it was in their workplaces or in their ministries, they did their best to reflect the light that is Jesus. And I'm telling you, if we're going to live out the Sermon on the Mount, it means first that we become morally exemplary people. But it also means that we go above and beyond just trying to remove sin and add some virtues. We are, we are doing things to make the world a better place. I don't know that you can be a Jesus follower. Like literally try to follow Jesus and not do your best to make the world better by your acts of service. Because that's what Jesus did. A lot of people rejected him, still healed him. He continues in, in the last verse we're gonna look at today. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. At Creekside, we talk a lot about passionate, compassionate service. And I think that's what it means to be a light, to passionately and compassionately serve the world around us. That's what Jesus did. And, and we believe that, that there is a purpose for every person, and that purpose is centered around experiencing and expressing God's glory. We talk about that a lot here. And part of experiencing and expressing God's glory in a meaningful way is finding a way to serve, to serve the world, to do good works, to do hard things that nobody else will do because you love Jesus and you, knew that, you know that he did something so sacrificial as to die on a cross for you. And it says that we're glorifying our Father. And, and, and the question is like, well, why? Why do I care about being salt and light? And it's because we have this heavenly Father who loves us. I have kids and, and I've always talked about, every time I've talked about pretty much in a sermon about God being our Father, I feel the need to say, I understand that many of you do not have a good example of a dad in your lives. They call my generation the fatherless generation because so many dads have left their children. And so when we see God in scripture as a father, for many, it's really hard to understand what that's supposed to mean. But now as I read that word, father, I think about my own children and how 
passionately, I love them and care about them and want the best for them. It's so easy to say, like, I would die for a person, right? Like, we can say that, and I probably would jump in front of a bullet for so many people. I've said this before. I would accidentally die for a lot of people. But if you gave me time to think about it, (laughs) I'm not really sure. But my children, you could do anything to me. And I would take it for them. You could chop off my hand and I would willingly stick it out if it meant that they would be protected. And so now when I approach this language, we glorify our Father. Our Father, what does that mean? It means to me that God is looking at me like I look at my children. How incredible is that? And if you have to ask, if you're like, why, why? I mean, why am I going to risk living such a different life that people look at me and they know I'm not like them and I don't fit in? I mean, we shouldn't fit in. If we're going to be salt and light, we're not going to fit in. And people are going to wonder, like, why, why, am I, why am I like this? Like, why am I giving my weekends up to go serve people? I mean, what is this? I think the answer lies in our belief that we serve a God who has called himself our father and who, if we are Christians, has adopted us as his children. Very famous uh, man named Pliny said at about the time that the scriptures were written, there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. There is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. I see this incredible difference in, in what Jesus means and, and how we've tried to live out, if we've tried to live out at all, the Sermon on the Mount. And the contrast is between what I told you earlier of Christians burying people, people that they didn't know because they valued human life so much. And what I see now, where people that are Christians get on the internet and tell everybody how much we value human life. Being salt and light is not sitting in a computer and telling everybody about how great Christianity it is. It's living a life that shows how great Christianity is. And so my hope is that you will take Jesus and his words seriously here. And you'll look at your life because this requires some introspection, right? I mean, what is it about my life that is not morally exemplary? What is it about my life that does not preserve and, and season our society in a positive way? What is it about me that doesn't align with the life of Jesus who, who showed us exactly what it means to be salt and light? What is it about me that needs to change if I'm going to be salt? And then, and this is hard too, what do I need to do to be light? What has God called me to? How should I serve? What am I passionate about doing for the glory of my Father who is in heaven? If we're going to live this out, we have to look inside. And we have to ask, what is it about my life that is not salty? And what is it about my life that I need to change in order to be liked?
And that's exactly what I hope you'll do right now. And so I'm going to give you a minute this morning uh, before I pray. uh, And I'm going to let you bow your head and I'm going to let you ask just that question. Uh, What needs to change in me for me to be salt? And and what do I need to do in order to be light? And I I just hope you'll ask Jesus that question. And then I'll, I'll pray in just a minute. Lord, uh, I'm, I'm aware that, that the world around us is, is watching us. And they, God, I, I think they're not seeing what they ought to see. I don't think that, that Christians in our country today are are living morally exemplary lives as a whole. I think we look far too much like the world when it comes to what we value as right and wrong, but even more, God, how we live in light of what we value as right and wrong. And Lord, we've cheapened Christianity so much that it just doesn't look that different than anything else. And because of that, Lord, people are rejecting you. And God, I pray that that would change. Nationally, I pray that that would change. But for us in this church, I pray that you would that you'd say yes to the prayers that were just prayed. And, and God, you would show people exactly what needs to change about them if they are going to be salt and light. It may mean that they, they have to give up more time. It may mean that they need to find an area that they're passionate about serving in. It, may mean, God, that they need to remove sins. Uh, It may mean that they need to stop taking shortcuts at work. It may mean that they need to stop being uh, just these kind of grumpy. I mean, just grumpy, Lord. I I know a lot of grumpy Christians. But I pray you'd show them and and you'd help them change because, Lord, what this country needs is for uh, us to take seriously your call in this passage to be salt and light. And so I pray that you'd help our church to do that, God. And, and I pray that it would, it would spread. I love you, Jesus, and, and I want my life to reflect that love for you. And I want our lives to reflect that love for you. Help us to.